Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. And if you have that Bible open, you can go to the third chapter of Titus. We are doing a series. This is the last one. I said last week was the last one, but I thought, nah, there's just one more thing there. There's a little bit more meat on that bone. Let me go ahead and go in and get this thing done. So Titus 3. Um, and this is interesting enough about uh, how I, I, I've called the good life. And if you remember, he's writing a letter. Paul is writing a letter to a young leader called Titus. Titus is on a place called Crete, an island there. And he says, all right, we got some challenges everywhere, but Titus, you got some challenges there, and I want to tell you how you can meet those challenges. And so he writes this great letter. And we're in that third chapter. Now, before we begin this, let me just say, I have a story. Some of you know this. I have stories that I use a lot. And some people are shy about using a story twice. Oh, no. No shy here at all. I figure, in fact, I used to have a pastor that says, you know, a lot of people say, hey, why use that story over and over again? Because, and he said, because you listen to that song over and over again. You ever think about that? Favorite songs, favorite stories. So I got a favorite here. So whether you, you know, some of you are going to roll your eyes and say, man, we have heard that before. I don't care, okay? Because you're going to like it, I guarantee it. So there was a guy named Soren Kierkegaard who... Uh, they call him the father of modern existentialism, which is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, nothing to brag about. But he was a brilliant guy. And he lived in a place called Copenhagen. And there were a lot of people in Copenhagen that weren't exactly living out the message. So he wrote stories, and he, he had perspectives, and he had a journal. And one day, in a journal entry, he had something called the tame geese. And this is how the story goes. He says, imagine a land where geese live. Now, there are humans there as well, but let's just talk about the geese for the moment. The geese have a church. It's called Goose Church. And every Sunday morning, they brush up their feathers, they put on their going-to-meeting clothes, and they come to Goose Church. They waddle in, and then they go ahead and squat in their goose pews. And the head gander's back there, and of course, he, uh, he has feathers on his head, unlike the pastor of Spring Community Church. So he's back there brushing up his feathers, getting ready to walk out. And so he walks out to his goose pulpit. And he walks out and opens up his golden gilded goose Bible. And that day they have quite a service. And they have quite a service because the goose, the head gander, has something he needs to talk to his people about. And he wants to let them know about wings. And so he honks out a sermon that day. But he honks out the sermon after they'd done responsive reading about wings. After they sung hymns about wings. After they implored one another in the pews about wings. So he goes to his goose Bible and he reads about God's great gift to geese, which is, of course, wings. And he honks out a sermon. With wings, you geese can fly. You can soar above our pens and our fences. We can get up there in the blue sky and we can flap because this world is not our home. We're just a flying through. We should give thanks to God for so great a gift as wings. And the place erupts. It was a boring, typical goose church, but not that day. Oh, that made them stand up 
and waddle. That made him stand up. And he says all the, Kierkegaard in this journal entry says, all the women were curtsying, all the men were bowing. I mean, they were having a time at Goose Church. Finally, he has to calm it all down. He calms it down and says, now, with these wings, you're going to go out there and be extraordinary. God has given us wings, so let us flap them to his glory. And all the goose geese said, Amen. And that's the end of the journal entry, almost. Because then he said, all right. All the geese then waddled home. Now in the business, that's called the punchline. If you didn't get it, I'm going to say it one more time, all right? Then, after hearing all about wings, the geese all waddled home. And that's the end of the journal entry almost, because he, he had one more line. And then the geese all grew fat and plump. And they were very well liked in human land, because then they were butchered and eaten. And that, says Kierkegaard, was the end of that. In other words, if God gives us wings, we'd better flap them. If God gave you hands and feet, you need to use them for His glory. Because He gave you more than simply a mind to think with. He gave you more than simply a mouth to talk with. He wants you to fly. And that's largely what Titus chapter 3 is about. Let's read it together. And I'm going to from time to time accentuate uh, some words for you, okay? Let's go right back up to, a verse, to chapter 2, verse 14. Then we'll, it's just two verses here. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds, good works. Now, down to chapter 3. We'll not mind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Good deed. Slander no one. Don't be contentious. Be gentle. Showing every consideration for all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of those works we've been talking about, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He richly poured out upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, verse 8. Titus tell him this. This statement is trustworthy. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. So those who have believed God will be careful to engage in Good works, good deeds. These things are good and beneficial for people. Now, listen, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. It's useless and worthless. Reject the divisive person after a first and second warning, knowing that such a person has deviated from what is right and is sinning, being self-condemned. Go down to verse 14. Our people must learn to engage in good works, good deeds to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unproductive. Jesus, help us this morning understand the good life. 
the life of good deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you all might remember, uh, I am tri-authoring a book with one of the most brilliant Wesleyan theologians in America and probably around the world. And then Caleb is writing this with us, my eldest son, and then I'm writing this with us. And the book comes out in July, and it's on the doctrine of good works. So I'd, I'd, I'd wrapped up the sermon series, didn't want to do anything else, but I thought, eh, let me read the third chapter here very carefully, and notice good works, good deeds kept coming up. I thought, wait a minute, just wrote a book on it, maybe I ought to talk about it. So here we go. When you talk to the typical evangelical today, it's almost like we have declared war on good works. Oh, you can't be saved by good works, you know that, right? Works, don't trust in them. And to a certain respect, we say amen. But that's not the only thing it says about works. It's not the only thing it says about good deeds. But when you look around, and I did it yesterday, I went to a, a, a website called preachingtoday.com, and I looked for some teaching, and, and one of the guys said, okay, let me tell you everything you need to know about works, and here's the illustration. And I love this one because every week when I come to church, I roll past the old WorldCom building. I wonder, how full is that place now? Remember the WorldCom building? It's out there on the interstate. Very impressive building. Even today, it's an impressive building. But I remember the guy named Bernie Ebers. Anybody remember Bernie? Anybody lose money with Bernie? Bernie Ebers was standing before the judge, and he was asking for mercy. He was a CEO, former CEO of WorldCom, He'd been indicted for orchestrating an $11 billion accounting fraud that shut down the firm in 2002 and lost a lot of people who were investors' money. This all happened back in 2002. It was the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history, and it devastated thousands of lives, thousands of employees for starters, a lot of them based right here, and of course, it bankrupted a lot of investors that thought, man, this thing's going crazy. I need to put a lot of money into it. So it went belly up. And defense attorney Reed Weingarten is there before the judge, and he is able to say, judge, I have 169 letters from Bernie's supporters. And they're talking about his charitable gifts. They're talking about his frequently anonymous charitable gifts and all the good that he's done, good after good after good that he's done. Now, Weingarten said, his defense attorney, if you live some 60-odd years, and if you have an unblemished record, never been in problem with the law, and you have endless numbers of people willing to talk about your good works and testify to your goodness, doesn't that count for something, Judge? Doesn't that count for something? Doesn't that count particularly on this day? And the judge said, no. And he sentenced him to 25 years in the federal pen. And that was the end of that. And a lot of people say, ah, that's a perfect teaching for what the Bible tells us about good works. That is, works can't save you on the day of your judgment. They won't save you. You can have all the good works stacked up as far as the eye can see, but you're in trouble with God if you hadn't made some kind of deal with Him. 
called a personal relationship. So that's pretty much sums up what most people believe about works today. And you see some of that in verse 3, 5, if you don't read it like it's supposed to be read. Jesus, look at chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Not on the basis of works. Now, you can say, all right, that means works must be the enemy. I'm thinking, have you read the rest of the chapter? You're, you're refusing to read chapter 2, verse 14, 3, 3, 3, 8, 3, 14. You're refusing to read the rest of it if you think that works are evil. God demands of us works. And if somehow we say, hey, don't need to do them. I'm saved by grace through faith. End the story. Hallelujah. Amen. I'll say, did you read the rest of the ver- verse in Ephesians? There's another verse right below that one. Did you read it? You're going to say, what? What? There's another, what? Another verse? Yeah, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. And so what happens if we don't do the good works? I will tell you straight up, you're in trouble on judgment day. He created you for good works and saved people do good works. Now my friend... Tom McCall, we were, this week I go, I'll be there until Friday, hope to make it back in time for Celebrate Recovery. When I come back in time for Celebrate Recovery, I'll be able to tell a good story about how something good happened to me at ETS, I hope. Actually, very few things have ever good happened to me at ETS, but I like to think that maybe some, one good thing happened though, one day I'm back in the back of a room, and I'm talking with that famous theologian guy, Thomas McCall, Tom McCall, he's a former student of mine, and uh, we're talking back there, I said, he said, man, he said, Matt, man, the things they've done, I've, I've taught at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Some people think that school, Trinity, in Deerfield, Illinois, is the leading seminary in the world. And he's, he's taught there for over 20 years. He says, you know what they've done with works up there? I think, I think I have an idea, but you tell me. He says, they weaponized the word works and made it evil and wrong. He says to me, Let's write a book on works, you and me. We added in uh, Caleb, and it's done. It's written. It comes out in July. But this is the introduction, part of the introduction to that book. Tom writes, People are hardly interested in the truth claims of Christianity unless and until they see that it matters. They will not be inclined to give serious consideration to the truth claims of Christianity until there is something about it that makes them hope that it might be true and that they will not be committed to it until they are attracted to it. Remember last week we talked? Paul said, hey, Titus, Timothy, tell, tell the slaves to be subject, to be submissive to their masters. And that just like drives me crazy. Why don't you say in slavery? But he doesn't. He says, listen, the pathway to the masters, hey, women, the pathway to your godless husbands, hey, 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 all you people living in the Roman Empire, godless Roman Empire, the pathway to the authorities are going to be the people who love Jesus that submit to those people. That just seems unbelievable to me. Impossible. Yeah, God says, that's the way it's going to happen. And by the way, slaves, he says, adorn the doctrine of God in all things. 
adorned the doctor. Ask. Hey, we got a Christmas tree yesterday. We got there a little late. Joshua was worried. Joshua says, you know, there's only one perfect nine-foot tree. And if we're not there on the button, when the place opens, somebody else might get it. That just causes everybody, oh, no. Somebody might get the perfect nine-foot tree. Can't happen. So we showed up a little late, and I wasn't there at all. But anyway, showed up a little late and got a really nice nine-foot tree. Perfect? I don't know. The best one? I don't know. But it will suffice for this Christmas. Leland Cypress. I don't know what you all are into. We want to get the perfect nine-foot Leland Cypress. There we go. We got it. What's interesting is God says, think of me as that tree. What makes that tree beautiful? Bulbs, decorations. And God says, you're my decorations. You make me attractive. When you act like hell, you make me unattractive. When you don't do good works, you make me unattractive. When you do good works, humbly and gently and kindly and sweetly and for me, then you make me look good. And people want me because you adorn God well. How do you do that? It's by good works that we can do that. Now, this is what Tom continues to write. He says, James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Care for the orphans, care for the widows in their distress, and keep oneself unspotted from the world. But there's a current generation, says Tom, that doesn't see it. They do not see behavior that suggests that care for others is essential to the faith. That a church that runs to the sound of the pain is a good church. People don't see it. They don't see us like that, so they think, okay, I just reject it. They see people who are fearful and committed to protecting themselves and their rights. That's all we exist for. We want to protect religious rights because we have rights in this country. What if that's not the most important thing? Your rights. I'm not getting many amens on that. Let me say it again. What if that's not the most important thing? Your rights. You know, the gospel's growing by leaps and bounds in places where they have no rights. China. There ain't no rights for a Christian. They say there's probably more Christians in China right now than there are in America. Now, I believe in rights. I want rights. I want religious rights. But at the end of the day, guess what happens? The gospel is quite safe without them if God chooses to move through us. And then he says this. They see leaders. They don't see us poured out to, to people who need us. They see leaders of organizations who appear obsessed with status and craving for political power. They see a message of salvation that is strictly about what happens after they are dead. Or perhaps one that offers health and wealth or better access to the American dream. And we're already extremely privileged. We just want more. They look at the evangelical Protestant church and they do not see religion as pure and undefiled. And in many cases, they simply do not want what they see. For many seekers and searchers who observe the practice of Christianity, Christianity is at best irrelevant and at worst a sinister threat. Because they don't see us poured out. They don't see us loving the poor. They don't see us rushing to places of serious need. And you're thinking, well, I don't know where there are places of serious need. Oh my goodness. We're the poorest state in the nation. 
we're in the poorest metro area in just about the whole North America. If you're not finding places of pain to run to, it's probably not the pain's fault. It's out there. And it's up to us as a church, it's up to you as a person of God to find it. So God declares, I I love this because I think this is a great evangelistic technique, particularly helpful on college campuses, but anywhere really. You walk up to someone, someone says, well, I'm an atheist. And you say, well, tell me about this God that you rejected. And when they describe the God that they've rejected, you will probably have an opportunity to say this. Well, good job. I reject that God too. I wouldn't accept the God you just described, but that's not God. That's not the God of the New Testament. That's not the Christ-like God. That's not the poured-out God. That's not the God that loves to heal. That's not the God that loves to love. What you've just described is something worth rejecting. Way to go, man. Fist bump. And then you can describe the God that saved your life. And that's a good God. In Genesis, we see that God is a working God. And that He made us in His image to work. That's the first thing you're told to do. Work! That's before the fall. After the fall, work! Why? Because something good happens through good work and good deeds. Over and over, we're told to do good works in the Bible. There are multiple verses that say we will be judged by those works. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. I think everybody here must have, must have, must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. When you have that personal relationship, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go do good works. What if you have a personal relationship and don't do good works? Then you don't have a personal relationship. That's what people do who have a face-to-face relationship with God Almighty and with Jesus Christ and are filled with the good work spirit. You do good works. And so he asks of you that. He demands that. He commands that of you. You say, well, I just don't believe that. Are we reading the same Bible, you and me? Uh, listen. Psalm 62, 12. Loving kindness is yours, O Lord, and you reward a man according to his work. Proverbs twenty four twelve. If you say, see, we do not know this. Does he not consider who weighs the hearts? And does he not know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render the man according to his work? 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone may be rewarded for his, deeds in the, for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. They're bad works, but they're good works. 1 Corinthians 4.5, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then... Each man's praise will come to him from God. 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as follow the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct themselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Revelation 20.12 Now we're getting serious. Revelation. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds, according to their work. Now, the most thunderous one we haven't even mentioned. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Jesus says, 
I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was sick and in prison, and you ministered to me. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Personal relationship? Apparently, you can't have one unless you have a personal relationship with the poor. And as much as you've done it to the least of these, you did it to... It says the other thing as well. I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. Thirsty, you didn't give me drink. I was sick and naked and imprisoned, and you didn't come to me. And as much as you've done it to the least, you've done it unto me. And as much as you didn't do it to the least, you didn't do it to me. Go to hell. Does it say that? It's a little bit more poetic than that in Matthew. But it's the same thing. Y'all, this is extremely important. I can jump up and down and scream it at you all day long. What's amazing is some people will not be budged from their seat. They cannot be bothered with doing good works. E.M. Forster was an atheist, and he talked about poor, little, talkative Christianity. Poor, little, talkative Christianity. It's what you all love to do, and I'm not talking about day spring, but it's what you all love to do, you evangelicals. You just like to talk. To which we say, if you make disciples by sitting around and talking, don't be surprised if your disciples sit around and talk. Everyone agrees. We've done the survey. It doesn't matter if you're Calvinist, if you're Catholic, if you're Wesleyan, if you're Presbyterian, if you're Methodist, if you're Nath, doesn't matter. Everywhere you go, what you read will be this. Works flow from a saved life. If you have no work, it's pretty obvious you're not saved. We're not talking about Thanksgiving coming up, let's go buy a turkey. We're not talking about Christmas comes up, let's do some angel, uh, that's an angel tree thing. Right, we're going to have some angel tree things out there. Oh, we're kind to the poor. We do one of these once a year. God wants you to meet Him daily, weekly, monthly. He wants you to be regularly involved. What you do at Thanksgiving and Christmas, that's great. Fine, thank you for participating. But at the end of the day, He wants you regularly involved in the works of mercy. Because He was. See, I don't think you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. Right, He says, follow me. Come be with me. Or where does he go when he says that? He goes to the poor. He goes to the sick. He goes to the lame. He goes to the fringes of his culture. No one else wants to go out there. Jesus says, whatever, come with me. That's where we're going. So one question. Are you with him? Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Because that's where he is. That's where he is. Tuck, go ahead and put up uh, the habits. We have said over and over, and we haven't done it nearly enough lately, so I'm going to repent and start doing this basically weekly. The habits of a day springer. What you'll notice here are two categories of things, although they don't come across as categories, we'll tell you, but I'd like for us to read this. These are our habits. These are both works of piety and works of mercy. So can we read these together, day spring? Habits of a day spring. Number one is... 
Daily, personal, and spousal prayer. Okay, let's just do better on that. Anybody here believe in prayer? Good, because we have ample opportunities, particularly next weekend, to do this prayer thing. We're going to have a Sunday night thing. We're going to have a Saturday morning thing. We want you to be, but personal prayer. Every day you need to be waking up and praying to Almighty God, sitting down, going somewhere, walking back for something where you're setting aside time to pray. So let's read this again. Number one habit of a day springer is daily personal and spousal prayer. Number two, Bible study, daily time in the Word of God. Number three, small groups, weekly involvement and community discipleship. Giving a tithe of our income to the ministry of day spring. Ministry, using our spiritual gifts in at least one internal and one external ministry. And missions, to share our faith with our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors, and to the ends of the earth. Now, we don't categorize these this way. Nonetheless, we believe in two categories of works, and we have to have both of them. Number one are works of piety. Works of piety, are that, we already read them. Prayer, scripture, we're going to be in church on, on a regular basis. We're going to be in small groups. We're going to be in discipleship groups. We're going to memorize scripture. We're going to fast. That's not mentioned up there. But fasting has always been an important work of piety and the Lord's Supper, which we take together monthly. I want to be about these works of piety. But that's not enough. There's also works of mercy, which include things for day spring like this. Pro-life activity, prison ministry, nursing home visitation, evangelism, Bible clubs, literacy training, celebrate recovery, and other things that we do. Those are works of mercy. And we set those up here at Dayspring because Jesus wants us to follow him to these places. If we're unwilling to, wow. I just want you to feel like on the day of judgment, you can say, honestly, pastor told me this. And we walk in and say, thank God for a church that believed in both works of piety and works of mercy. But for some horrific reason, and I know this isn't going to be the case, but let's just say, for some horrific reason, you're cast aside. In that moment, you'll say, well, I was told. I didn't really believe it, but I was told. I just want you from the bottom of my heart, to hear it. The thing is, in the Old Testament, there's a word Shema. And it means hear, but it also means obey. To hear it is not enough. Just like to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior isn't enough. You've got to follow him to places of serious need. You've got to follow him to places where no one else wants to go, to do things no one else wants to do, to be the person no one else wants to be, because that's what Jesus asks of you. Now, everybody's willing to say, hey, works are something that come from a saved life. But I'll say something else to you. When you look historically at people that talk about works, and some of the Calvinists say this, it's not just that that happens from a life that's saved. It all can also cause salvation. I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. That's way beyond my categories of thinking right now. But that's not quite what they say. They don't say work straight up. It's the mercy that comes into your life through works. Remember that uh, Titus 3.5 passage? Let's read it again. 
Jesus saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with his mercy that can come through those deeds. So let me tell you, when John Wesley was preaching, this is how he did it. There were 10, 15,000 people, sometimes 5,000, sometimes 500, but he would preach to thousands of people. Someone told me yesterday that they were, they were actually present when Martin Luther King gave a speech in Jackson. So I couldn't hear him, but I saw him. Can you imagine preaching to 20,000 people? <laughs> 10,500? Listen, we don't even try to do it here. When there's eight of us, we want it mic'd up. Can you imagine preaching to 500, 5,000, 10,000 people and could be heard? Oh my goodness. So he'd go out there and he'd preach. Now, I don't know why he did it this way, but he said, we're not having an altar call. They never did altar calls. And they said, if you want to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, come down here. That's the Billy Graham way. That was a Charles Finney way. Most famous evangelists did it that way, not John Wesley. John Wesley would say, if you want to respond to this message, there's a group you can join this week. And they would join up with a group. And a group is a work of piety. And in that group, you would hear people confess their sins one to another, which is a work of piety. And in there, you would hear people talk about Bible study and how you need, mister, to start studying your Bible, which is a work of piety. And they talk about how you need to pray to this God of the Bible, which is a work of piety. And so over and over, you would hear about these works of piety, and then they'd finally say, hey, and by the way, we're all getting together this weekend. We're going to go help that situation over there, which was a work of mercy. And so through these works, what John Wesley hoped was this, that God would work through those works mercifully, that you'd finally want to say, hey, I think God's knocking on my door. I want to receive him. But they didn't do it at the preaching event. They did it through the small group and the works of piety and the works of mercy. Then you receive him. And then you know what John Wesley said? Now, if you want to maintain that salvation, you're saved, right? Yeah, brother, I feel saved. God has worked in my life. God has moved on me. I'm saved. Great. You want to keep the salvation? I think so. Then pray. Read the scripture. Take the Lord's Supper. Fast. Everything the Bible tells you to do, do that thing. And, by the way, do that regular work of mercy. You will be able to maintain your salvation if you let God's mercy and His grace flow through those works into your life. And go on now to entire sanctification. And entire sanctification was simply this. you got to live with Jesus a while to find out how deep of a sin problem you really have. And you finally come to the recognition, I want it all. I want to lay it all on the line for Jesus. And He moves you to lay it on line. Because the group is saying, go on now. Go on and make this thing entire. Make this thing all. Make this thing complete. Make this thing perfect. And finally, they'd say, God's going to move on you here pretty quick. It might be some months. It might be a year and a half. It might be two. But eventually, God would move on your life as you're doing the works of piety and the works of mercy. And pretty soon, you were all the way in. Entire sanctification. Then they said, okay, you want to maintain that entire sanctification, that fullness of the Spirit? Do you want to maintain that? And of course you said, yeah. I mean, I'm living the abundant life. It's better now than it's ever been. Yes, I want that. Then do the works of piety and the works of mercy. Ever more intense. Do them. And you'll be able to maintain. 
Because God saves you by grace and he maintains your salvation. He maintains your entire sanctification by grace, but that grace flows through prayer. A personal relationship with Jesus, prayer. That grace flows through the Bible into your life. That grace flows through fasting into your life. That grace flows through small group participation in your life. That grace flows through communion into your life. And that grace flows through the pain and the people in pain that you're ministering to. Are you that crazy? And if you're that crazy, you're crazy as Jesus. You say, I don't like Jesus being called crazy. I think I told you this before. Old Wesley Biblical Seminary used to have a big old dictionary. You ever seen any fat dictionaries in the library? No one ever looks at them. There's a big old fat dictionary like this. I thought, I bet there's every word they know about in the English language in that dictionary. I'm going to go look up the word crazy. I don't know why. Just some dumb thing I was doing one day. So I looked up the word crazy in this big old fat dictionary. So, boom. And down there, crazy means, you know, crazy. Until you got to the eighth definition. Number eight. Significantly deviating from the norm. That's Jesus. What was Jesus? Significant deviation from that which is common, from that which is normal, from that which is profane. Jesus is different, and he calls me to be different too. He calls me to be crazy like him. Ah, oh, Wouldn't it be great to belong to a church that was crazy like Jesus? Crazy like the Holy Spirit? Crazy like the Father in heaven? He said, oh, I still don't like that term. You don't have to like it just significantly deviate from the norm by His grace and His mercy and His Holy Spirit in your life. You like that okay? Because that's what it means to be holy. Significant deviation from any norm that I know about. And God wants to move in your life just that way. So, I know you are more godly than I am, but occasionally I look at Facebook. I saw on Facebook, sometimes I just need these glasses of mine. I saw on Facebook this thing. Had a man dying on a cross and had two guys on left and right. And the Facebook meme said this. How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? I don't know. I kept reading. No baptism, no communion, no Sunday school, no mission trip, no volunteerism. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray the sinner's prayer. Yet it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus, simply by believing. So David just told me to think about it. I think I will, David. Let me look at the account. Let me look at the account. So what? Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanged there, was hurling abuse at him. Hey, aren't you the Christ? For crying out loud, save yourself. And by the way, save us. But the other one responded and said, do you not even fear God? I mean, you're under the same sentence of condemnation. We're suffering justly. We're receiving what we deserve for our crimes, but this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, all that he had to do was believe. We did a couple things before that. Number one, he did a work of mercy by looking at the other guy and saying, reconsider and repent, dude. And then he actually prayed to Jesus, because that's what talking to Jesus is, right? So he prays to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Even on the cross, even on the cross, works of piety and works of mercy. Anybody here want to be crazy? Is that old thief? My hero, E. Stanley Jones. This is it. There's one more thing here. E. Stanley Jones used to have something called the round table. And he'd invite religious people, not just Christians. He tried to get about a third of the crowd there to be Christians, but he'd invite Hindus and Buddhists. And, uh, and he'd just say, everyone share your experience. We're not arguing about anything. No one's defending anything. No one's arguing. Just, just share your experience about what your religion has done in your life. And so they go around and share it. Stanley Jones says, not a single time in India where we did those meetings was Jesus not in control of the meeting by the end of the meeting. No, he needs my arguing to make things happen. No, he doesn't. He just needs love to be at the table. He can work. So at the end of the meeting, Jesus was always in control. But at the end of the meeting one day, there was a Brahmin guy, lawyer, that says... Right before they broke up, he says, all right, you Christians say Jesus has saved you. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, Krishna has saved me. And Stanley Jones says, wow, man, I'm grateful Krishna saved you. Really glad about that. Now, the meeting's over. We are going to go down now to the outcast quarters. We're going to help them in their misery and in their pain. Might have even a chance to clean up the latrines. Want to come with us? And the guy said this, Ah, Sahib. I love the word Sahib. Ah, Sahib. I'm saved, but I'm not saved that far. And I believe Jesus wants you to hear this today. It's a question. Dayspring, how saved are you? We're to be people of good deeds, good work. That means we need to arise and follow Jesus. Run to the sound of the pain. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Dayspring priest, please stand. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. So many of these people do precisely that. Some ways are seen, some are unseen. But Jesus, thank you for a body that takes seriously good works, good deeds. We're not saved by those, but your mercy can flow through those into our lives. Thank you for people that are crazy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you very much.